Hi, you're listening to Talking About Organizations, a podcast about management and organization studies where we read and discuss foundational texts and key ideas that inform the way we think about organized work today. Talking About Organizations is a community resource supported by our listeners. To find out how and learn more about our program, visit our website at www.talkingaboutorganizations.com. We also thank the Management Learning Journal for their wonderful support. Now on with the show. Welcome back. Today we conclude episode 98, where Leonardo, Pedro, and Tom are discussing the text The Management of Innovation by Tom Burns and GM Stalker, published in 1961 by Tavistock Publications Limited. In part two, we will discuss the implications of the book's findings on managing innovation today. If you missed part one or to learn more about the text, please go to our website, www.talkingaboutorganizations.com. We now rejoin the conversation. So in, uh, in part one, we covered largely parts one and two of the book. We concluded with a discussion of the mechanistic and the organic systems of management that was used as sort of a, a measuring stick that they applied as they went through and looked at the uh, the building of relationships and how it changed power status and uh, and other aspects of the impact of innovating within the organization. But uh, I wanted to spend a moment to talk about one part of uh, one chapter out of part three, where they turn the spotlight on the manager director. Now that's the the name. You know, the chapter's title is "The Men at the Top," and the manager director, the number one in the organization, CEO, whatever you want to call it nowadays, that was the focus. And I've found it really fascinating the way that they portrayed the manager's director's role as separate from all other managers, because you don't see that very often in some of these kind of works. They they sort of just talk about management and not how the manager director is different from other managers. And uh, what they did was they characterized the manager director as having very specific decision-making roles in the organization citing Chester Bernard, citing other prominent works. But when it came to innovation, they came up with like four different kinds of relationships that manager directors have with managers and the technical experts who are involved in innovation based on the extent to which the manager director is either exploiting the position as being the number one in the organization or escaping from it. And I thought that was fascinating. Number one was was exploitation of the manager director's position of isolation and supremacy, which is accepted as legitimate. So this is the manager director as autocrat, basically the one who is the one in charge. And in some cases, that's somebody who could be the head of an innovative, a very innovative organization. The second one was attempting to sustain the role of charismatic or even authoritarian leader which is to say that keeping autocratic without necessarily being visibly the face of the organization, sort of like as a behind-the-scenes wheeler-dealer in the organization. The third one is where the manager-director tries to escape from the position, but doesn't do so in a way that obviates their or you know abdicates their responsibilities. This would be more or less like the... Um, the old CEO who's nobody ever sees, but is occasionally does one or two things in the organization, but otherwise lets the organization run. 
And then the fourth one is basically a manipulator in which the manager-director plays off of different groups against each other in order to secure his own status. And that these four have very, very different ways of playing out in terms of the political conflicts that we talked about in the first two parts. I had never seen manager-director, you know, usually when you see literature on manager-directors or CEOs or whatever, it's from a, a strategic leadership type of a literature, uh, you know, particular traits or whatever. This is the first time I saw this as manager-directors in their political activities and how it sets conditions that help him retain his status as the privileged one to make decisions, but sets different conditions among everybody else in the organization regarding how ideas become generated, what it does to the people who are on the outside of the organization looking to the inner circle, whether or not they feel excluded, ostracized, whatever. It's really interesting. Uh, this is... This was pages 213 through 219 in, the, in that book. So besides, obviously, there's more annoyance of having man, <laughs> but we have to excuse the gender bias of back then. This is also a very interesting chapter and conversation because I think it reflects many things across the book. I think first is that in part one, we talked about how the book is representative and helped build the continuous approach which usually is related to what is called the open system schools in understanding organizations, the idea that we should understand the link of organizations and their environments in order to understand how they work and function. But also, unlike other works from, this, from a similar time, such as Thompson's Organizations in Action, that was episode 90, there is a lot of richness about the functioning of the organization in a way that's very close to what you usually describe as the natural approach to organization, which takes account of the politics and relations and understandings and group norms that are happening. And also, I think what they do is the kind of thing that you can do in a classic book. You can you know, encompass so much. They also preserve some of the basic principles of the rational approach because they're still looking at the formal structures on the goals of the organization. So again, similar to Thompson, they're striving for some kind of synthesis, looking about the environment, the formal aspects, the interactions that are taking place, and the relationships across different groups and departments, units that we talked about. And I think this chapter illustrates this point, right, when it talks about the politics. But the other thing, and again, looking back from wh where we are today, it's almost feel that they don't have the language yet to say it, but they're talking about the role of the managing director of a particular leader in terms of a symbolic dimension, right? So there's something about how the person exploits the position and is, performs and gives sense and constructs some interactions or not, that then has consequences in the interactions and the ways people relate and understand what is happening in the organization. So again, the vocabulary was not there yet, but I think the impression I get is one of trying to sit less as a pushing the buttons type of activity and more about the way the leader is participating and shaping his or her own position and the understanding that people have of that. Yeah, I think you captured that uh, very well, Pedro. Thanks for that. I'm not so sure that they were really trying to come up with a, a typology. This was just sort of 
a listing of the four behaviors that resulted from manager directors from different firms. It's also very clear that the uh, the the way in which they interacted or chose to interact with uh, particular individuals in the organization, they were trying to capture how, like for example, and a manager director who reaches down to a particular technician located deep within the hierarchy or in some the desire to establish a more of a one-on-one and cut out, cut through all the people in between can have such a a powerful impact on the organization. Not necessarily bad, although a lot of those in between who were cut out might have seen them as bad. And I know that I've seen those sorts of things happen in organizations that I've been in. If you're in a large organization and you've got a top manager who really needs information or wants somebody to do something, the last thing they want is the the hierarchy to filter the message at each step of the way. You want to go direct to the individual, and then everybody else in between falls on the defensive. I thought they did a really good job of capturing not just that, but they also talk about the succession of what happens when uh, the top manager or uh, key individuals leave, and these informal relationships then either have to be reconstructed with the incoming manager-director or they end up disappearing and the uh, the organization imposes itself upon the manager director to preclude those sorts of relationships from being established. Uh, so uh, again, different ways in which politics, status, prestige can get in the way of the most efficient, effective way of turning good ideas into products. So another set of aspects I think it's worth it to reflect is all the breadcrumbs that the book has given to the subsequent debate about innovation. And here I'm thinking about the work of people like Deborah Dougherty. And as I read the book, I could not stop thinking about many of the insights that she has further expanded and explored in her long career as a scholar of organizing innovation. One of them, I think it's about the way in which different parts of an organization understand each other and the market. And I think that this is kind of, um, it's kind of, you can see the germ of the idea. They're talking about language. They're talking about the extent, the metaphors they use for the market, whether it's something to pour something in or, or something to actually to explore and see possibilities. It's also close to the debate we had about the Scotch Nitware paper on cognitive communities, right? Many episodes ago, but it's about understanding and language, social cognition, and how one imagines the market, but also about how different functions and groups understand their goal being innovative, creating new products, and what does it mean in practice? And I think there's funny elaborations, you know, on how they might agree on such purpose, but for some people, that is going to mean better technology, more investment in resources to develop more innovative technology versus shipping the product faster versus, you know, having more efficient output. And they say that that's the natural tendency when you have a complex organization, each department is going to favor or see the particular goal in light of their task. The manufacturing is going probably to privilege improving the process of manufacturing versus the scientists that are thinking about the creation of new technology. And how the struggle of innovation is one of creating the synergy between these different groups 
in understanding what makes sense for this particular task, this particular project, this particular product, right? And also somehow harmonizing such understandings together. The other aspect, I think, that is very, it is a breadcrumb that turned into a, a broader insight, is this importance of seeing innovation, so not just theoretically, but for the people doing it as well, as somehow everyone's responsibilities. And I think that's why in the book they have this whole idea of not just talking about department units, but the process and the different people and uh, tasks involved into realizing that, which is something that is not necessarily understood. And I think that's one of the important insights from the distinction, mechanistic, inorganic situations. People understand their purpose, their part, and they relate more to each other laterally. They have a sense of solidarity, so to speak, and connection with their joint um, common goal. And also related to that, this idea that if it is everyone's responsibility and the struggle is to harmonize the understandings and generate the ability to you know, see such purpose, it's about then sustaining that, which we go back to where we started about the market as not necessarily just a one-off thing, but as a skill that needs to be cultivated and sustained across. And, you know, I... These are all topics that have been debated and discussed in the literature after. Deborah Dougherty, we're going to link some of her papers on the website, has explored many of these challenges and shown on the difference they make for organizations when they're able to develop such capabilities, which at the first level don't seem related to innovation, but actually happen to be the part and parcel to realizing that. This is very interesting, Pedro, because I was thinking about that when he quote a lot of Barnard. One thing that I was thinking, yeah, was that if all this commitment thing that they are talking about, that everybody has to have a purpose on the organization. I was thinking when Barnard say that there is a zone of indifference when people commit to organization. That where's your interest in part of the organization begins and ends in. I have a feeling that they are saying that there is no zone of indifference, you know. If if you are you're up to be a innovative organization, you have to be there. And maybe it's something that today is more debate. I think that people tend to agree with that, you know, that you have to have a purpose, a commitment, and this is the way that you have to do your job. Now you are seeing this transformation in market, but where begins your commitment, where it ends? Maybe it's better to work in a mechanist organization that you work for nine to five and then you go home, you know? <laughs> I don't know if this will be the way in, the, in our organic organization I, I got. The, the idea of that you have to be part of community that I think that's, let's say, because we are talking about a, a organic organization that resembles the idea of traditional against uh, modern society. And then you are part of a community inside an organization. So I think that it is a little bit strange because you are in a kind of a network society, a network organization, but you are part of a community. So you have to commit to that. I don't know if I understand that well, but you know. <laughs> no, I think you captured that uh, very well. The, um, th this is where innovation is everyone's responsibility can be seen as a true vision or as a PowerPoint deep slogan that uh, gets hung up on a wall someplace that doesn't mean anything. And the organization just goes on doing it, uh, you know, things the way that they always, uh, always did. 
I can see, you know, like uh, we were talking about mechanistic and organic as extremes. Uh, one way to think of it, I think, is that, you know, there is a natural sweet spot that a particular industry or maybe an organization within the industry sort of occupies. Whereas if you're an organization that really does, no kidding, have a stable product of which maybe there'll be minor adaptations to it over time, there is a responsibility to identify problems, but not necessarily to innovate. Okay, so you wouldn't necessarily expect that somebody who is working on an assembly line to manufacture a device, they can detect flaws or whatever and do that, and then they can seek to help improve the organization. But they may not be in a good position necessarily to innovate the next product. They have to step back, essentially absent themselves from the assembly line to see the picture and do that. What I'm going with this is the idea of, well, organizations should offer X percent of time to its workers to be detached from their duties and to go ahead and just be creative, innovate or whatever. You uh, you, you hear this story of uh, Google and some other organizations that actually do that because it can be difficult, depending on the type of an organization that you're in, to be able to innovate from your standing in the your particular standing in the organization it's easier to do if you can step aside from it now try to systematize that and this is where the question comes in how do you systematize making you know the return on investment of that 20% actually be you know a good return you know how do you sustain that over time if everybody just goes and spends the entire time doing nothing, then that's not going to generate much of a return. Whereas if you have a mechanism that's set aside in order to try to figure out, assess, collect, share what this extra time is do, you know, you're doing with this time, then maybe you can get something out of it. We're back to the original problem of, well, then we're looking for the one best way to generate and share ideas, <laughs> which may not be the best way to come up with the next product. So it's, um, again, it's back to not an either or, you know, how do you do it in a way that promotes the good of the members of the organization and promotes the ideas in such a way that you don't disrupt what you're trying to do? It did, but I'm going to push further and say, maybe it's not just about types of organization, but types of moments, right? We talked about the pandemic just in a bit. So maybe it's, again, this capability of doing all of these things we just talked about. It's also the capability of being able to adjust to the situations. But Leonardo's point made me think that I, it's probably not fortuitous that a lot of the debate since the 80s, right? So 20 years after the book was published has been, and still is, a lot about culture, ideology, norms, purpose. So we still debate these things, meaning... So it's not just about management setting up the policy and standards. To some extent, this is, this is almost seen by some as kind of an operations problem that is specific to particular settings or is more relevant by particular people. But a lot of debate on management is about the symbolic. It is about how do we get to go from just a slogan in a PowerPoint, as Tom was saying, to something that is felt and lived. And that's where culture matters. Then again, Burns and Stock are not talking about that because they don't have, they didn't have the vocabulary yet. But I think it's telling that that's where a lot of the debate went 
including a lot of debate about professionals, managing experts, managing all sorts, you know, boutique consultants or also R&D or science labs and, you know, startups. And they already hinted that in these organic settings, there is an importance of this ideological commitment or attachment, which the literature has shown and has debated. But you're also quite right, Leonardo, in thinking about the limits of such ideas. We had the episode on engineering culture from Gideon Kunda a few episodes before that we saw how such efforts to manage the minds of people can lead to also some dark territories, right? So it's interesting once again to think, yes, all these are important and relevant, but one, to what extent they are deeply felt, right? To what extent they can lead to some kind of negative consequences? To what extent is actually needed and some people, you know, would rather just have a more formal attachment to their workplace, which is not necessarily negative. But if anything, nowadays, I think that since the pandemic, the debate has been a lot about the dissatisfaction or the disillusionment that many people experience in the workplace, right? So I think this makes it even more relevant in trying to understand, is that really what is required to what extent in which particular attachments and ways of relating to your work can be relevant and what is required and needed or not to make innovation happen? If anything, the contingencies and contexts have become much more complex <laughs> because we also have learned what are the multiple downsides and pushbacks and lessons of trying to accomplish some of the ideas and policies and strategies that the book um, documents. Yeah, this you mentioned startups, and you know one of the things that I'm wondering, I'll sort of leave this as a as a question because I really don't know. I perceive that the idea of the startup or the individual entrepreneur has become sort of a, almost an into, I don't want to say an into itself, but it's something that is so popular in Notion, especially now with YouTube and with you know, the, the social media and some of the, the opportunities that are now available for people who feel like being part of a large organization is just by definition stifling to them. You know what I mean? So the idea that to be innovative, one needs to have the shackles freed and to be able to go out and pursue your passion, fully understanding that within of, you know, that it's going to be a temporary thing. You, if you succeed in producing a good or service that is novel or whatever, then you can sell it to another company or sell the technology or sell the ideas to somebody else or whatever. And you just go, you know, the firm ceases to exist. You're on to your next startup. Is this taking the organic a little bit too far? I think it's actually going back to the beginning of last century. And that's exactly what Bernie Stalker said. And we quickly mentioned, which is a moment in which it was more inventors into different social networks. They talk about different you know, societies that were formed in which people interacted and shared ideas and so on, because we know that bringing things into reality from aeroplanes to, you know, a new compound always dependent on exchange of ideas. It's never a hero mission. But it's closer to that, right? The communities are simply online nowadays. But it's like this word of inventors that is closer to the beginning of the century. But I think there is also a different way to read that. And that is something that we talked a little bit in our episode 73, in which we were talking about 
the management of innovation, and we talked about the role of different interfacing intermediaries and in bringing new ideas into labs, right? So that's, we read the work of Tushman about that. But we also talked about on how this interface and the way that ideas are brought together and used and connected and brokered, given internet and all the communication we have today has expanded. People talk about today about crowdsourcing, open innovation. In that episode, we spoke with Hila Lishwitz Asaf and her work at NASA in using exactly all sorts of open innovation strategies to tap into the collective wisdom of people. So I think it's interesting to see that on one hand, yes, there is the notion of the entrepreneur and everyone doing for themselves and so on. But also this new ecosystem has allowed established organizations like NASA and many others to, in a way, bring and tap into broader wells of wisdom and ideas, so to speak. But the interesting part here to us, again, is that all of that needs organizing <laughs> and needs management of culture and symbols. And that's one of the things that Hila shows in which the challenge is not just to set up a crowdsourcing platform, but the way in which the professionals taking up the ideas, are going to understand their roles, right? So again, to go where we started, their purpose, their task, the extent in which they'll be able to see themselves in such new situation and come to terms with that. It's also about the ways in which we construct the problems in ways that people are able to tap and offer ideas, the ways in which we orchestrate and bridge languages, not just within an organization, but across, right? So in a way, also, I think that the challenges have evolved with this new context. And along with this, I think it's important to add something that Burns talks a lot of, uh, about professionalism. And we have a lot of studies from the 80s until uh, 2000 and something that dwells into the loss of power of professions. How they are not that community of experts anymore uh, that have this knowledge that there is their possession, the, they are the ones that are dealing with cutting-edge technology and cutting-edge technology. And it's interesting how these studies talk about if they were born as a logic between the market and the, and the organization, now they are, they are inside the organization losing power due to the fact that they work to an organization. So they are not the creators of knowledge anymore, as they say, for example, inside the university or, they are, or, or inside the organization. They are workers now. There is a lot of debate about how they are proletarians now, how they are not that powerful anymore, how they are not uh, the, the owners of their knowledge. From the 60s until now, we have a lot of debates on this uh, uberization of professionals. So it's a different setting. Uh, then when the, the professional does, doesn't have that power that Burns talk about putting in their, in their hands and they are now more a regular worker. Yeah, that's a, that's a terrific point. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm studying threats to professionalism now and uh, they're multifaceted coming out of the pandemic. And I think it does have a direct role in innovation because like, uh, for example, one of the greatest threats that I've been looking at has been commodification. Uh, essentially that assigning extrinsic value, which is uh, far different from what the value of the, the knowledge is worth, and that that is leading towards, well, I mean, I don't want to pick on pharmaceutical companies, but they're they're sort of uh, the, the one that 
case that people kind of gravitate towards is how the ideal of the profession in promoting health versus the business end of things that says that, you know, we, in order to be able to generate the greatest, most cutting edge medicines, you have to be able to raise money, which, or raise revenue, which is a conflict. It can be a, a, a tension. And there you're talking about high risk. You know, when you're a profession, you're, you're a uh, chemical engineer, I guess, you know, working these new medicines. There's a lot of uh, a lot of need for new ideas, a lot of need for information sharing, but there's also constraints that are put upon you because you belong to a particular firm and there's intellectual property and all sorts of things. It gets very, very complicated. So yes, uh, I mean, yeah, I don't want to just talk about deprofessionalism in, in that sense. There's also other threats like we saw with public health and uh, the pandemic where, you know, the public health professionals were under significant pressure as well. But kind of tying this back to innovation, you want to have a, an environment in which new ideas can be converted to goods and services. Anything that erects a barrier in the way becomes a problem to that. And there are all sorts of things that have come up in the past 10 years or so in which it becomes that much harder to generate or to be able to promote those new ideas because of social change because of uh, because of the financials involved and that sort of thing. It also kind of leads me to a question about, are we outsourcing our innovation too much? Are we looking to startups? Are we looking to these little little firms? Maybe pharmaceuticals is not the best example of that. But are we looking to, you know, in order to reduce or uh, to keep sta- stability within our organization, are we looking to just simply outsource the innovation function to those who would have the technical expertise or whatever like these? Or we just sort of pick and choose these startups from a, uh, from a lineup and say, all right, I want that innovation. I'll, I'll buy it and I'll bring it into my company. I wonder if that's good, bad, or we would need data to respond to that, so I don't have a response, but I have a reflection, because what's happened is that, at the same time, I could not stop thinking about communities of practice in the different ways through which organizations have evolved to facilitate the interaction of people, because, of course, there is a challenge that knowledge is leaky, in which you want to stop it from running out of your firm, of your lab, but also need to be able to bring people together either within the same professional area, but also across, right? Especially if you wanted to come up with new ideas, which usually require the recombination, the integration of multiple specialists. So communities of practice, but also similar ways that have become so popular to manage knowledge. Repositories, lesson learned, you know, all sorts of stuff that are, interestingly, somewhat formal ways, or semi-formal at least, to bring people together, to bring experts together, to bring people across the organization, departments and silos, to come up with ideas, to come up with possible scenarios, prototypes, to say what we were saying at the beginning, this rapid innovation idea, has become more popular. And maybe because sometimes I have a positive bias, I think the other side of the coin of the proletarization of professionals is that our ideas about experts has changed, or better stated, I think experts having are increasingly changing their own understanding about their work and recognizing that a loss of autonomy sometimes is the counterbalance of a more relational interdependent type of 
way of conducting one's businesses. So I was given the example of Hilal Shifts Asaf's paper on NASA that we discussed before in the podcast. One important piece of the story is that the engineers at NASA had to rethink their professional identity, to see themselves under a new light and not just the people coming up the solution, but tapping into the wisdom on the lab being the entire globe, so to speak. And that, of course, creates a lot of tensions in how one sees one's role. Similarly, you know, from architects, I think, to healthcare professionals, there is more, just like of the example of hospitals, this importance and debate about integrated healthcare, patient-centered, these, in a way, go in the same direction that Burns and Stalker are talking about, in thinking about the process in which people are involved and in allowing them to see their participation into that and to each other and further cultivate in such awareness. So to some extent, yes, there are terrible things happening in healthcare, and I think particular thing in some situation in which is very marketized, is not understood as a human right or a public good, you know. But besides, I think in parallel with that, there is also the shift in understanding the importance of relations and interdependencies that professionals are involved as they enter organizations or they are working across organizations in achieving particular goals. So in a way, the story has become even further complicated <laughs> because now also professionals who maybe before practice a more autonomous manner are brought into the vortex of work. Yeah, now that said, there is there is also some dark sides to the proletarianism. And that is uh, what I, the first thing I think about is the corruption of knowledge. And I'm not talking about um, corruption in a, classic sense. What I'm referring to is that you have misinformation or you have disinformation about the knowledge, which can appear, for example, if you are if you decide you're not going to go see a doctor, you go check out your favorite website and get your diagnosis that way because it's a heck of a lot cheaper. But of course, you get what you pay for. And that also has kind of a chilling effect, I think, on, on innovation because now what we're talking about is the confidence in the knowledge and the need to protect it. Uh, that's for for professions. That's an essential. That's a big. That that's like ninety percent of what we talked about in the uh, the ep- episode on uh, Andrew Abbott and what makes the professions basically what uh, establishes their professional identity is the knowledge that they deal with. The systems of innovation that we've been talking about have generally been protect. You know, allow the professionals are protecting their information in the course of trying to pursue new ideas, new products, new drugs, new whatever. The more that their relationship with society changes, the more that we're discovering that that protection of knowledge is becomes really, really critical. Yeah, and this is interesting because what we are seeing, particular industries, is that innovation is not related to one or other professions. What we are seeing is a, a lot of teams that has multidisciplinary uh, people, you know, they, they have to discuss all the impact of innovation on market and society. And this is one of the threats to professionalism, the idea that you have to put everybody in this discussion. And this brings me to one of the things that the Burns Talker are saying, that the importance of the interpreter of knowledge and how innovation will be more effective if you have 
this interpretation. And I think this is one of the things that is most important in organizations today. That manager that knows how to deal with these uh, multiple qualifications, multiple aspects uh, that innovation are involved. For example, if you take a look in this artificial intelligence uh, innovation related with innovations with AI, artificial intelligence, you will see that there are a lot of implications that's not only technical, but you know, you have to keep in mind that there is a lot of a lot of impact that is not only on the technical side as the old professionalists would would discuss more. You have all these complexities going on and this figure of the interpreter that can translate every knowledge into something viable for the company. It's today something in the book was already saying that back in the 60s. Listening to you both, what came to mind is not just the interpreter or the challenge of professionals in upholding the standards regarding the knowledge, but if anything, I think the new challenge of innovation, of managed innovation, seems to be moral and social. So it's almost like who is going to take care of the things that we put into the world? So it's not just, I mean, of course, it continues to be a challenge of creating and, and bringing something new into market, into use. But also, I think more and more what we are realizing is the responsibility that we have for what we put in the world. And the extent that many times our systems, regulations and so on fail to take account of that. And there are many examples, right, of misconduct, corruption, fraud. From the Boeing 737 new plane that we saw that unfortunately um, was designed in a way that was, no, was pushed outside of the door and two planes collapsed. We know the story, how it ended. From the opioid crisis, from the bias that we know that um, AI systems may have that just reproduce inequality. So I think that um, it's something that was not a topic in the book, but I think that has become a topic for us. It's not just an operational challenge, let's call it, of realizing innovation in terms of seeing everyone's participation, harmonizing their understandings, um, fostering a particular way to interpret the role of the market and so on, but to do all of that while trying to maintain professional standards, space for regulation, space for accountability, a deeper sense, especially in light of climate change, of what the new technologies we put, what they mean for our planet, you know, what kind of um, unintended effects it can have. What is the long life cycle of something that um, we bring into the world? And it has become an urgent question. Um, so if anything, the management of innovation has expanded in its scope of challenges that we need to think. And I think that's the glimpse of hope. Thinking about that in an organizational matter, which means in a more systemic way about the interdependencies that we bring into that and the role of the work and the values that people bring as they do their work matters more and more. Yeah. And I think uh, it also spurred another thought that I, I didn't see so much in the book because I don't think it would have been part of what Burns and Stalker were thinking about. But risk is a whole theme that is not really discussed that I know that we think about nowadays because we think about what are some of the reasons why we put barriers up to innovation nowadays and risk, risk calculus, the way we calculate risk perhaps is a little bit more intense now, or maybe it feels more intense now. Like thinking about software, 
1980s, there was a lot of innovation in software. You could program on your personal computer, put it on a disc, a five and a quarter inch floppy and sell it for 79 cents and make a bunch of money. Nowadays, the risk calculus is so great. We don't allow that type of software development anymore. It's got to be airtight, assured, virus protected, you know, all of that sort of thing. The requirements for what we would consider to be a passable system has increased precisely because risks that we were willing to take when, say, something was new is now no longer uh, no longer the case. And I think that that adds to the need or, you know, really makes the, the numbers of people who have to have their hands on that bridge between the development and the production and ultimately put a product out to market makes it much more complex and difficult, increases the need for collaboration. And then we start complaining that things are too slow, things you know that we're not innovating, air quotes, fast enough to solve today's problems because we've erected all of these barriers. It's a really, really tough balancing act, I think. Yeah, what you say that I got thinking that uh, the book starts something that nowadays we're, we discuss a lot and I say the beginning, but right now I think I can go back that there's a lot of a lot of studies saying that innovation is getting uh, harder and expensive. So this is related with what you're saying that maybe organizations are not fast enough to innovate. That's because you have this balance between basic research and development getting more and more difficult. Ideas uh, we have as studies showing that most of ideas die in the in the process so the need for management uh, structures that can deal with more complexity more different qualifications inside the team is getting more important every day i don't know how we can work this inside the organization it's i think we will not have the chief interpreter officer for example but it's it's something that maybe has to do with inside departments, how we can see this operating. I think it's difficult when you are dealing with empirical studies. I think it's not something clear. There is no plan, such a planning for innovation when we see the studies, when you see what's happening. People things are working at, at the same time and something that looks more, more viable, uh, it's put on the market and then we see if it works. So the, the book has this idea of putting ideas into market. This is something really interesting for now because it's uh, something that we are dealing that. I say about the value of the F of ideas. So the same challenge uh, in the 60s, the same of today, how to cross that. Maybe better interpreters, better understanding of the institutional context of uh, where the company is working and also a good deal of, of qualification, technical qualifications. So... It's the same challenge today. I think it is, but I don't know if advance more in terms of understanding this process of innovation that maybe they started back then. Innovation is still today something like kind of mysterious. So maybe we are seeing a kind of comeback to this idea of the inventor. We can see these big CEOs, these big idea, these big entrepreneurs, and we are listening to them saying about technology, about society, about institutional environment, and so on. Maybe we are not so far away from what Burns Stalker was saying. Innovation is still a, a great mystery for us. 
unfortunately. So I'm trying to think of what you both said in relationship to the book. And I think that one of my main unexpected takeaways from the book is exactly how they show the value, or at least how to understand innovations. We need to understand the social relations at work. They call it management, but it's basically the relations about different um, groups, professionals, hierarchical roles in the organization, how this orchestration is important in the innovation process. And thinking about what Tom said in terms of the, we can call red tape that exists around innovation, or Leonardo is saying about the challenge of the interpreters, or crossing the valley and bringing ideas that we are still struggling with that. Actually, I wonder, it's not a solution for that, but maybe we are, we are thinking of the problem in a too narrow manner. Meaning that given what we just said, that we have produced a lot of things as humanity that we put out there, and now we don't really know what to do with, just think of space trash, for one. Wonderful thing, we learned so much the space race, it's wonderful, but now we are to the moment that we need to start thinking, how are we going to manage the space trash we created? And that can apply to so many other things, right? So that leads me to believe that maybe this idea or limiting the horizon, and I think that's a lesson from the book, you know, the way you imagine the market and the purpose that you are trying to accomplish matters. So changing the horizon in terms of not just putting things out there in the world, but having a deeper, broader sense of ownership and responsibility to these things once they are there, which I think pushes us to think of not just the inventors, not just of the management systems, you know, that was the first passage that the book tried to show, but now from the management system to the social system in which the work to bring innovations and create them and sustain not just their creation, but their life cycle is important. So I think that we are still needing reimagination, or it is the moment for a reimagination of what we have learned from the book and the related research that has looked at that and try to think how we can connect all the debates that exist today about, you know, ecology, climate change, new social issues that we face, and what we know about innovation, but just not just in thinking we need new innovations to solve them, but we need to consider them as we create new software, new technology, new drugs, new any type of spacecraft as well. So I think that is the challenge that thinking about the book and thinking about our current state leads me to reflect, is that we are needing a new management of innovation that expands our imagination and is able to grasp those new challenges in a broader context. And I think my final word is going to follow on that because, uh, indeed, I wholly agree that this speaks to a need to soften that boundary between societies and the organizations within. And I think that uh, it as long as that boundary remains rather fixed and not terribly porous, we're going to see uh, continued problems of that nature where the second and third order effects of a good idea wind up lingering and not uh, being taken care of. You mentioned life cycle, and I think that that's uh, going to be my, my final point. One of the things that's always concerned me about the discussions of innovation is that it singularly focuses on the new or the novel or the the point of creation. And there's a tendency to not think about the full life cycle all the way to divestment. You know, that's part of what I think the, you know, efforts on sustainability are trying to grapple with. 
which is certainly a, uh, a, a area of innovation all its own. But it's something that I think that organizations need to grapple with a little bit more. It's because the new and the novel is just seen as more glamorous. You know, we just have to face that fact. And the rest of it, the the tail end of it, the sustainment to the divestment of it is just not. It's just not interesting. How do you make it interesting? I don't know. I, I don't have an answer to that. I, I know that, you know, for particular things, I try. But it's uh, it uh, until... There's something that says that or some way that our um, our dealing with garbage and recycling can be made as interesting and as lucrative and as prestigious as the creation of something new. I think it's it's always going to be a problem trying to get on that backside and prevent those second and third order effects from happening. Well, what Burns and Stoddard would say that I think one of the things that is interesting about the book is how they talk about status and politics that sometimes is something that gets on the way of getting the work done. How we get to think about investment and the whole life cycle and, you know, the garbage and recycling is that maybe have to find a way to put that meaningfully as part and parcel of the process, of the work, right, of what is to be innovative. So to redefine, so to speak, the very meaning of innovation. And that concludes the episode for today. Thank you for listening. The views expressed are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of their respective organizations or institutions. We hope that you enjoyed the conversation and found it valuable. And if so, please consider subscribing through your favorite podcast service and you won't miss an episode. We also welcome your feedback. So if you liked or didn't like something or have a correction or suggestion for us, please get in touch via Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or our website, www.talkingaboutorganizations.com. Again, thank you for listening, and we hope to see you when we present another classic reading on organization theory or management science here on Talking About Organizations.